Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, friends. Today's guest is Cody Townsend. Cody is one of the best free skiers in the world. He is an adventure junkie. So he doesn't like the word junkie. So I have to be careful not to say that. But he's uh, terrific. Really fun conversation about risk-taking and life-threatening sports and what drives people. Adrenaline. Cool stuff like that. Cody's Instagram is a gem, man. Uh, just Cody Townsend, C-O-D-Y-T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D. You can follow him on Twitter, same handle. And he's great. Really cool conversation just about life. You know, when you do a sport that can take your life, and when you even your leisure activities can be dangerous in that way, you really have to have some kind of interesting perspective. And as somebody who's not a risk taker at all uh, in that way, certainly not in the physical realm, I hats off. You know, it's impressive. It's uh, fascinating, and it's way, way outside my zone. So exactly the conversation that I love to have. I think you'll really, really dig this. Cody's a cool cat, and uh, came over to my house to do it, actually, which was neat. And, uh, yeah, so there you go. Enjoy it. Uh, other stuff, CBS Sports, of course, is where you'll find my writing coming off of, uh, well, we're still in hot stove season, of course, with a lot of transactions to come. So uh, read me over the holidays. I'll be writing still for CBS Sports, and we will still be covering stuff even uh, if it happens on Christmas or whatever. If it's major, I'm writing about it. So check that out, and uh, yeah, enjoy this episode of the podcast with Cody Townsend. You can do whatever you want, but we're already recording. All right. So now you can feel super awkward about it. Oh, sweet. Great. Uh, Cody Townsend's in my house. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Jenna? I'm good. I'm excited about this. We've communicated online. We have a mutual friend, Katie Baker. Yeah. Uh, you live in that part of the world. And uh, you are a pro skier and I guess an adventure seeker. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah. I really like adventure. How does one grow to really like adventure? There's adventure like, oh, like I'll, you know, go for a walk in the woods and we'll see what happens. And there's, yeah, I'm going to free climb on this thing. I'm going to go down an 18,000 foot mountain and things like that. How does that even start? Uh, I think, well, first off, I think science has actually pointed to that people's DNA is actually different. Interesting. Yeah. They're, uh, so it could start before you're born. Um, they're, they're, they've studied thrill seekers and they've seen a little bit of a DNA difference between thrill seekers and not. So maybe I didn't have any control of it, yeah. but to get to those points, I think it's just baby steps. I mean, I grew up, uh, going up to the mountains from Santa Cruz, California, and we'd go up to Lake Tahoe go on the weekends. And I just like, yeah, I grew up, I fell in love with it from like two years old. Awesome. Did, were your parents, so they were outdoorsy and they skied and they did all that stuff? Yeah. My mom was a journalist. My dad was, uh. A football coach and a high school teacher, but they loved, my dad surfed, my mom skied, they just were kind of outdoorsy in general, so we'd go up to Tahoe on the weekends and 
go ski as a family, and I fell in love. Do you have siblings? Are they like no, you? I'm an only. You're child. an only child. Yeah, That's yeah. interesting. Exploded. Maybe that explains something. I'm not really sure. Possibly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, at what point, you know, so you start off and you're young. At what point do you decide to ramp it up? You know, to go. Like, okay, I'm going to go on the Black Diamond Run. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to start to really. Can, how precocious can you be to get going on that stuff? I don't know. I th- you know I think it. I, there was a defining moment. I think when I was about. 11 maybe 12 years old yeah did my first backflip on a pair of skis and i don't know you maybe you just seen someone do a backflip once before and you're like i can do that yeah and then you get to that point where i remember just finding the jump it was in between a ski race so we had one run and then you have a break before your next run and you know i went with my friends and i was like i'm gonna do a backflip and the first one i landed right on my head (laughs) and and then the second one i I landed it i think you just learn that you're like man you can break through your own fears and you can have success and like there's this path to get to there and uh i was kind of a you know i don't like to say the word addicting but it is kind of like yeah you can conquer your own fears and push through and do things you you know a lot of people don't think is possible how does that affect your social group you talk about i was with my friends and i did so and so does that invite a situation where the people you're going to be close to are also adrenaline junkies are also that way or can you be hang out with people who are bookish and they do this and they do that and that's just their life yeah i mean you generally all of a sudden find yourself among people that are kind of i guess we'd say risk takers yeah. I, try and, I don't like to use the word adrenaline junkies because okay i don't I don't know if that's true or not. First of all, junkie is a pejorative term. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. It could be totally true that we are actually just physically addicted to these few sensations and endorphins yeah. and adrenaline, but we might also not be, and um, those are things I'm actually trying to figure out. But back to your point, yeah, yeah. you end up kind of socializing with that crew. And yeah, I, uh, you know, I have my bookish friends and whatnot, but for yeah. the most part, you're kind of doing stuff that's uh, generally with people that are wanting to go on adventures and, you know, do cool stuff and my mind. So you, and you start exploring too. I mean, obviously now you're an adult and you have just these travels are incredible. When did you still start first start dipping your toe into that? Like, okay, your base is Squaw Valley and Tahoe mm-hmm. in that area. Are you heading to the Rockies at an early age? Are you checking out this? Are you checking out that? When do you start to expand your horizons in that way? Well, the great thing was growing up at Squaw Valley, that was like the mecca of free yeah. skiing. It was like the birthplace of free skiing. You know, the legends of the sport were there. Shane McConkie, Ken Kreitler, the, the Gaffneys. It was like, so I actually grew up getting to watch that in my backyard. Wow. And, um, and I was a ski racer, an alpine ski racer, and I traveled the world doing that for a long time. And um, had pretty good success with it. Um, I was on my way to try to be, you know, USD team athlete, Olympic athlete, mm-hmm. and I was doing well towards that. But I got burned out by kind of the grind of it, the the structure, and I just, I it took away the love of skiing for me. And skiing was like the most fun thing I knew. Yeah. Meanwhile, my home mountain is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. Being these guys doing flips off cliffs and revolutionizing the sport was happening in my backyard so it was pretty natural i just i actually just started chasing those guys around the mountain that's amazing <laughs> until they were like finally like who are you <laughs> us? yeah definitely what what part of the grind is it is it just like you have to get up at a certain time for competition is it that you can't veer from orthodoxy like you have to go down a straight line like what what is it that that you felt uh, pinned in because obviously you had talent you might have been able to pursue that yeah. but it didn't seem like your thing yeah it was more the fact that skiing seems like one of the most creative sports in the world yeah you can do unlimited amount of things with it and it's just it's a super special sport 
But in racing, you're all of a sudden going between gates over and over yeah. and over, and you're repeating one thing. I see the value in that now as I get older, but when you're young, you know, it's kind of like demanding to just, it's a good ski day, and you have to go do 20 laps doing the same turn over and yeah. over and over. And then, um, you know, there was something about, I liked the camaraderie of free skiing, and I wasn't that into, like, winning as a sole individual sport like I would win and I felt like I was like alone on the top huh. you know and it was a different feeling from growing up playing football and you win and you're with your team yeah. it's a really celebratory thing and I was like I remember just being like kind of feeling lonely when I win ski races oh, wow. and I was just like not that into that sensation where I'd rather just go ski with my friends and go have fun so we talked about the free skiing and tagging along with McConkie and those guys. What age is that? Are you like a little guy and getting after it? Uh, I was about 15, 15 when I started chasing them around, and they were at the pinnacle of the sport. I'm trying to imagine, you know, like I played basketball growing up. I wasn't that good, but I played basketball. Let's say that I was better than I am, and I'm imagining myself at 15, like, oh, hey, Michael Jordan, can I hang out with you? Like, that's that's, that's what we're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, sure, yeah. That's I mean, insane. That'd be like trying to go batting practice with like Barry Bonds and just him saying like coming up to you and being like oh you want to do it with me and you're like yep sure. I, I already like that we're glorifying Barry Bonds I already know we're going to get along oh, Bonds yeah, is yeah. my guy even though he's not an expo he's still my guy yeah yeah so so yeah so you're in it at a young age not necessarily competing on their level but just they're willing to bring you and it's just oh hey come on with us for sure yeah and it was just I would see them there's something very visual and very inspirational about watching you know, someone jump off a cliff right in front of you, and then you're like, oh, that's how you do it. And then you just, like, naturally absorb what they're doing and get better through time. And, you know, I was really fortunate to grow up in a place like Squaw, being in Mecca and chasing those guys around. I mean, I would not be here where I am today right. as a professional skier uh, 15 years. Wow. Um, doing, if it wasn't for that. So... Take us through... I mean, this is a very general podcast. Like, I've had politicians on it, oh, athletes sure. on it, all that stuff. It's, it's what I like. I'm, I'm interested in different stuff. And the less I know about something, the better. Like, you're coming on. I'm going to do a thing next week with a guy who wrote a book about Roman history. I know shit all about Roman history. Like, nothing. But I'm like, holy crap. Like, he documents 500 years. Sign me up. So, if you were explaining free skiing to a layperson, other than it's skiing without the constraints of alpine skiing, what are the machinations of it? What makes you a good free, uh, free skier? And what are kind of the nuances of it? Yeah, so, I mean, in the history of the sport, like, the free skiing as it is now kind of really started in the 70s. It was termed different things, okay. like hot-dogging and whatnot, but it was kind of starting up, like, the 90s is where Action Sport Revolution came to, to fruition, and during that time, what made you a good free skier is you're doing groundbreaking things, spinning more times, jumping bigger cliffs than other yep. people, and it was just this very progressive thing. It was... Like, one guy can do 360, the next guy does a 720 spin, the next guy does a 1440, and so on. This is X-game stuff. This yeah. is similar to surfing and skateboarding and so exactly. forth. Exactly. And it was this very progressive movement. Um, I, we're getting to a point where that progression of action sports in a certain way is kind of plateauing. Okay. It's like we're sort of reaching physical limitations yeah, right. at a certain point. And, you know, in 20 years, it went from a guys could do a single, you know, rotation on a single flip... Now they're doing four of them. Holy cow. Know? And it's like, you, you can't really spin any faster or flip any faster yeah. anymore. Or go any bigger because your legs can't take it. So, you know, what defines it these days is a lot about your style, um, the, the stories of the adventures you go on, um, the things that, you know, make it visually appealing to an huh. audience, like how, how you get down a mountain. Um, 
I've always defined big mountain skiing. What I do is like look at a mountain and ski down it in the coolest way possible. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's like just do it in your way, what you want to do. And, you know, people kind of in a certain way, if they are into that, then you're a good free skier. If you, you know, they're, you know, you just took you 10 minutes to get down and, you know, you made a hundred turns and didn't jump off anything. It's not that cool. And probably not going to be a professional skier. Right. As far as mountains in general go, you know, obviously there's certain certain things are mapped out. If you go to Vail, if you go to Aspen, if you go to Spalda, okay, those are conventional. But there are a lot of mountains in the world. Yeah. And you can't, I don't think you could ski down all of them. No. Is there a gray area? Is there like, I'm going to do this. It's not forbidden. I won't die, but it's not exactly on the beaten path. Like, is there a gray area of mountains? Yeah, well, we usually, um, you know, we term it, there's what we call front country or the resort. Okay. And that's where right. the ski area is. And then there's a term people call side country or slack country, and that's using the resort and then going out of bounds or if they have open boundaries, going out of the controlled areas and yep. skiing. You're technically in backcountry and uh, well, the elements of the backcountry terrain, and then there's just backcountry, which is all the other mountains. And I would say I spend about 80% of my year in the backcountry. Really? Um, it's where, you know, I, I really seek, one, good snow, mm-hmm. and when there's less people, there's yes. better snow. <laughs> so, And then, two, it's uh, I really love just being out there, so the being out in the mountains, um, going to, you know, peaks and seeing for miles around and nobody's out there. It's just like one of the most peaceful, kind yeah. of cool things. And just exploring the mountains, I think it's just such a cool environment. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that's like, I guess, where you're kind of trying to define the gray It's mainly the resorts to the backcountry. Those are the two big differences. Um, resorts controlled, it's generally safe. Backcountry, got to know what you're doing. Can be very dangerous. But you don't necessarily, if it's a mountain you've never been to, I mean, there are people blog about it and people do whatever, but are there places you've been to where you've got little to no knowledge of the terrain and you're just like, I'm going for it? I usually try to find those places. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I love is exploring, going to new zones. Um, you know, other people might have been there, but it's kind of a new to you zone. Yeah, yeah. Is something so that, you wouldn't necessarily want to read about their experiences or look at their pictures or yeah. whatever. You'd be like, I'm going for this. Unless it's a certain type, like I, I hiked and uh, I climbed and skied uh, Denali. Um, oh, we're going to get to Denali. Yeah. The pictures are, by the way, Cody Townsend on Instagram. Like, it's just, it's so um, vicarious. It's so like, oh, there's no chance that I would do this. But my God, this looks so cool. Yeah. yeah. Follow Cody on Instagram. Go ahead. But so for something like that, like, yeah, I, I will research as much as I can. Yeah. But then there's so many zones that we go to when we're in British Columbia and we're using snowmobiles or yeah. hiking to get out there. And, and uh, in those instances, yeah, like I'm, you're just going out there and finding the place by yourself. And I really love those moments. One thing you said that was so interesting to me was the idea of finding peace, that mm-hmm. you're, you're doing things that are so, we'll, we'll get rid of the junkie term, but they do pump adrenaline. They do, they are incredible physical rushes and yet it's peaceful at the same time. And, and again, do a great job of chronicling what you do on Instagram. Some of your Instagram stuff is your fly fishing, which yeah. fly fishing is maybe the most relaxing thing there is to do in the universe. For sure. Possible other than like a sensory deprivation. Tank. Yeah. So is it just a matter of getting away from, you know, like I live in a normal house in a normal neighborhood and have a normal level of arousal. It's neither high nor low. Are you looking for really high or really low? Or like, like, let me ask it this way. 
you just came from a restaurant, you came from lunch, you came with civilians, you had a sandwich, yeah. whatever. Is that weird for you? Do you need to be way up or way down? Well, it's for me, like, in uh, like if I'm in a city for too long, I start to go crazy. Yeah, interesting. That's, I, like, I, I've been, I, you know, spent a week in New York, and by the end, I'm, like, claustrophobic. I feel Very like... Very concrete there, too. Yeah, and I'm, like, I just don't want to be there, and I get agitated and on edge. So there's something about, like, being out in nature that just is so calming and relaxing to me. Um, you know, one of my favorite things in the world these days is to hike a long, hard way to the top of a mountain and sit there in silence for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes and yeah. eat lunch. And you're just like, this is amazing. This is like the coolest place I've ever been. And, you know, I just do that in kind of every mountain you want to climb up. And yeah, there's something about being in the wild that is like so, it's natural to humans or it's natural to me at least. Like right. It feels like that's where I'm supposed to be. Um, I love being out gone away from everything but at the same time like you're saying these this balance um for me yeah there's these highs of like a thrill seeking of you know pushing yourself or pushing through fear but that's why i also like fly fishing is it's a it's a natural balance to it yeah. in certain ways where i know in the middle of winter if i've been skiing super hard and then pushing it all year and like really going I will like drive by a river and just crave to go fly fishing. And so I kind of see like these balances between like full throttle and then like calm, peace, clear mind and all that. And yeah, I kind of, I don't know. It's a yin and yang kind of thing that I really like. I wonder if your kind of mentality attracts people to a place like Denver, where again, I live in a very conventional neighborhood, 30 minutes under the mountains. Yeah. And you can throw 14ers everywhere, everywhere. And that's, people take beer. Yeah, they walk up the fourteener. They get there at nine in the morning. They start at four in the morning, and they climb down. And that's that's a normal yeah, weekend. Sure. And it's interesting to find that. You know, I wonder if it's if I'm by if it's all around me, so I'm immersed in it. But I wonder if that's what people seek. If it's like, yeah, they want the conventional life, but just to have that option to go up and like you could live in the Tahoe area and just go up to Swan. It's yeah. not far, and just do it that way. I guess too. for sure. No, I think that's why. Like probably places like Denver are just growing so fast because people you have here. that access. If you're 27 and single, you probably moved here in the last six months. Odds yeah. are, like that's <laughs> just how it is. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's a place like Reno is growing because it's actually you know there's a good economy there, and then the Sierra Mountains are right there. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something, I think there is a little bit of a shift. Um, you know, one of, one of the things I see it as is escapism is becoming a thing. Like yeah. we're so constantly connected to our phones, to our, the internet, to everyone around us, to just like really uh, big social structures, yet you need to kind of get away from it a little bit. And I think that's where like these sports like skiing and, and hiking and it, it, you just kind of get away and clear your mind for a little bit. And it's not like a really conscious clear your mind, but it's just this kind of like reset button and whatnot you know yeah um, i i find when i go on a trip and i'm camping on a glacier for three weeks and you come back you feel like a completely different person you know you're like email oh man you look at an email like no way I'm no not, way i'm not answering <laughs> this right now i just want to like keep riding this out for as long as i can let's talk about that denali trip because it looked both incredibly cool and terrifying which yeah. is pretty much all the pictures that i took two minutes ago um the actual activities of it, when you're doing stuff, it's like, all right, you're in your zone, but there's also, oh, crap, it's unbelievably cold, yeah. and you're exposed to the elements. You're in a tent or whatever, but it's brutal. Like, yeah. I mean, is that a feature or a bug to you? 
Um, it's a little bit of both, you know, some of breaking through those challenges and thinking, doing things that you don't think you could do yeah. is, uh, it's really like, it's an empowering thing. Like I always equate it to, um, you know, if you go to, you got your dream job and you go into an interview, you're going to be nervous and scared and you, you nail it and you get the job. There's like no greater feeling yeah. for that an, any person could feel them like that. Well, I find that in sports and in nature, the same sort of thing, like doing things you didn't necessarily think possible. So, you know, putting 120 pounds on your back and hiking Oof. for, uh, man, <laughs> days on end and thousands and thousands of feet, miles on miles, seems like you're like, I don't know if I could do this. Like I'd never done, did something like yeah. that. And then just to do it, you feel like, you're like yeah, I, I didn't know I could do this. And then, going to 20,000 feet, like I didn't, I've never been above 14,000 feet. Yeah. And, you know, the, the sensations of hiking with almost no oxygen was oh. so new to me and being able to push through it and do it was just like, you know, it was such an empowering, amazing. Feeling. Is it just will or, and fitness or do you need to have some sort of third element to it? You, uh, there's a few different, yeah. Certainly physical fitness. Well, yeah. Physical fitness is definitely key. Um, will is definitely key. But I think there's something else that, like, it's kind of strategy and mental game. Because, Interesting. Um, because of the fact that you're, when your brain is starved of oxygen, you start to think differently. Um, you you can feel it coming on. You know when you start waking out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was like, I, when we got to about 18,000 feet is when it felt like everything changed. Wow. And you kind of all of a sudden started to get woozy. And it was so funny, like, I, I laugh at this now, but I got up to this ridge line and looked out, we're about 19,000 feet, and it was just one of the most beautiful oh, views. Yeah. It was so beautiful, I started crying. And I was like... That's cool, I've, though. I've never cried because of beauty, but it was like, because your brain is starved of oxygen. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. emotions. But then what comes with this, like, strategy is, like, you have to know what pace you go because you could be really fit and go a little bit too hard and you won't get up there um if but then you got to go fast enough to you know beat the weather and not yeah. make the time so there's a lot there's a mental game to it um i've had some uh some friends who are incredible alpinists who've climbed everest multiple times and, wow you know they they've told me that altitude affects you each individual differently and every time you do it differently. So you really have to be really in touch with your body, really in touch with what's going on and really make conscious decisions. Like, um, when I did Denali, one of the things for me was as a big guy, I'm, you know, six to 190 pounds. Um, a lot of mountain climbers are a lot smaller than me. Yeah. You kind of go up a mountain quicker. And for me, it always like be tough to keep up with them. And I'm like, I didn't feel like I was in good shape. But I'd always keep up with them and just be more exhausted at the end. Well, <laughs> with this, if I was trying to keep up with guys that were faster than me, you know, I could get haze or hape, which are high altitude cerebral edema and high altitude pulmonary edema, and die. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, so I had to go down at one point. We started hiking up, and I was keeping pace. And then all of a sudden, I had to think about it. I was like, no, you're going too fast. Wow. Drop the ego. Like, don't try to keep up with these guys. Know that you're weaker than them. You're not as fast as them. And slow down. And I slowed down, let them go off. And sure enough, we about 19,000 feet pretty much caught back up with them because I slowed down, kind of like got, was in touch with what I knew of what I was capable of and tried to stay within that because if I went outside of that, you know, bad things can happen. You know, there was a, 
unfortunate death up on the mountain when we were up there because of someone that went too fast. One of your crew? No, no, oh, okay. no. It was, uh, it was a, a Nepalese Sherpa, actually, wow. and, um, came from Nepal to climb. And I think, um, you know, 20,000 foot mountain in Nepal is almost nothing. It's like a foothill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Denali, that's our biggest mountain. But for him, um, he went too fast and he wow. summited and on the way down um, got high altitude pulmonary edema turned into haste and then he died within a couple hours so they're real real threats and you got to be really in touch with with your body and your mind during those situations i have like 60 follow-up questions here's one so the act of doing these things helps you mentally it helps you you develop a strategy because you have to you develop a strategy because you take on these challenges or whatever do you do additional things? Do you meditate? Do you do, I don't know, mindfulness exercises? Mm-hmm. Do you do things on terra firma to, you know, at your house mm-hmm. to prepare for these insane challenges the way that you would training for a marathon? Well, you've got to run to train for sure. a marathon. Do you do mental preparation exercises? And if so, uh, what do you do? Yeah, I definitely do a lot of mental preparation, um, starting with a lot of it's research. Like, you know, I try to, like, you know, do a ton of stuff with seeing, like, read stories of you know what happened at high altitude to certain people where did the yeah. decision making go wrong in these accidents and and starts from there and so start to understand the the signs of what could go wrong before you even get up there and then from there there's a um you know mental preparation in the terms of like visualization like when i'm skiing lines it's all about visualization uh. you know mentally preparing exactly what's going to go on yeah. doing it in your mind a thousand times over I feel like tricks your whole entire body into thinking that you've done it and can do it. And uh, that's been that's been kind of a interesting and probably the most powerful thing I use, tool huh. I use to do stuff like that. Um, other than that, no, I mean, I, I guess I find it meditative just to be in the mountains so I don't have to kind of yeah. prepare for in that sort of way. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting... The, the mental preparation, I think, in action sports is actually more important than the physical. Makes a lot of sense. It's funny. I had uh, JJ Reddick, NBA star, great, one of the greatest shooters of his yeah. generation on the podcast. Very interesting guy, super smart guy. And he said, he was looking at me and he said, um, he's visualizing all the time. He's visualizing a ball going through the hoop. And I said, how often do you do it? And he says, I've done it 10 times since we sat down. He's just looking at my face and imagining that my face is a hoop, yeah. basically. I, I, the next, I think I'm going to do this with every athlete. Now I want to know if football players do it. Yeah. I had Tara Lipinski on. I didn't think to ask her. But uh, I, I find that so interesting because I don't think that's how normal, not normal, I don't think that's how conventional people are wired. People who are accountants or whatever, I don't know if they're going through ledgers in their mind. All the, maybe they are. Maybe, yeah. But there must, I, I think there must be something to the idea of being at the top level at whatever mm-hmm. that you just can map it out. You can certainly map it out in chess because that's a mapping game. But maybe it is that way with every sport. I don't know. Yeah, I find um, that's what I found so interesting about action sports. And if you look at the history of action sports compared to conventional sports, so in the last twenty years we've seen absolute revolutions. Like, uh, hmm. like I was mentioning before, how many revolutions they can spend, how big people are going, how steep they're skiing, how fast they're skiing. That's not because we're not physically evolving in 20 years. It's we're mentally evolving. Yeah. And what is possible in the mind is all of a sudden making it possible in the physical reality. Um, whereas conventional sports, you know, yeah, like football players are getting a little faster, a little stronger. Same with baseball players. But, you know, we're not seeing massive overhaul revolutions no. because there's this, like, 
mental switch to the game. Um, and that's what I found in action sports is this mental side of it is so fascinating to me. Um, there's, you know, I try to look at myself quite often and be like, why do I, why am I a throw seeker? Why am I doing this? Why, why do when I get home from a trip, the first thing I want to do on, or like a hard trip at that, that was like rough, challenging, you're like, oh, that was brutal. Then you get home and you're like, I want to do that again. <laughs> you know, like, why do you want to do that? So I look at these mental games so often and it's, uh, it's fascinating. I don't know. I, I don't know the answers to why I do what I do, but I'm constantly seeking those answers. I like that a lot. And then on the physical side, obviously the, just what you do, yeah. you burn calories. It's a good workout, obviously. Yeah. But do you, again, if you're at home or whatever, bike 50 miles on the weekend, go to the gym and lift weights conventionally, run on the treadmill, like what do you, I mean, I imagine you would be in great shape if you only did this stuff, but do you do more typical exercise to get ready for that? Yeah, I definitely do. I think there's two sides to it. One is that I just love to go do stuff every day. Yeah. So whether it's hiking or biking, climbing, I just want to be outdoors doing a physical activity every day. But um, I think it's also the progression of action sports has made it to it's such a it's the level is so high, you really do have to be training at it. So I do a lot of gym time, plyometric time, work yep. with trainers and whatnot. So uh, for me, it's actually a lot about injury prevention as right. opposed to being at the top of the game because when you're you know tumbling down a mountain at 60 miles an hour, your muscles will hold, hold you together. You better be strong. Um, so yeah, that's actually, uh, yeah, these days I definitely, actually ever since I started doing it, I really took my ski racing training and football training, just like, I'm going to keep carrying that over. I'm sure this is going to help before really it was like a thing to do. Now it is kind of a thing to do. What position did you play to play football? Quarterback. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. My, uh, my, my dad is a 30 year, uh, uh, football coach and college football player. And I grew up in a football family. Um, Trent Dilfer, my dad was his coach in high school. Cool. He's like, his parents are my godparents, so I grew up around quarterbacks and football my whole life. How good were you? Was it a possibility of a college scholarship and all that stuff? Um, I could have gone to college to play, for sure. Okay. Um, uh, I had a few different like offers from smaller schools, but nowhere near like any uh, D1 schools or anything. Like I had a couple like, yeah, come walk on at UNR and stuff like that. Sure. But uh, I asked the coaches at one point. I remember Colin Kaepernick, that. right? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a UNR guy. Yeah. And um, I uh, asked him. Once the UNR coaches specifically, I was like, oh, how much time can I ski in the off season? And they're like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, well, how much time off do you have? And they're like, well, if, if, if we don't go to a bowl game, you have four weeks. If we go to a bowl game, you have two weeks. And I was like, that's not <laughs> going to work for me. And one of the, the best things was, was growing up watching Trent. Yeah. I saw him and he was head and shoulders above every other player in high school. He yeah. was like a man among boys. Mm -hmm. And I watched him just, you know, go into college and break records. And I just, just like, and then watch him go to the NFL and then be, you know, the definition of the average quarterback, the game manager. And I remember thinking, I was like, I'm not that I'm not as physically talented and as amazing of an athlete as he is. So to me to go to the NFL, there's zero chance of that. And I saw skiing as, you know, my first love. I was like, well, actually maybe have a chance to become a professional skier. So right. why would I want to kind of throw that away just to play college football for four years, which I would have loved to do. But then all of a sudden I probably would have given up a ski career. So I had to make a choice then. And it was a pretty easy choice actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talked about 
the possibility of falling down a mountain at 60 miles an hour, mm-hmm. uh, I will hopefully not trigger any PTSD or anything yeah. like that. But I mean, I have to ask you, what's the biggest wipeout? What's the scariest one for you? Uh, the scariest one was there's uh, a year where I was like in full confidence. I've been building up a ton of confidence over the last couple of years. It yeah. felt kind of like I can do anything kind of mentality. And, uh, <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> no, and there was a cliff. It was about a 90 foot cliff up in British Columbia. We were heli skiing, making films. And, yeah. uh, I saw this cliff and I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. And the other two guys who were filming with me, they're like, I don't want anything to do with that. And I was like, oh man, I got it. And uh, I ended up coming off the cliff and didn't scout it quite well enough where the cliff was sloping out quite a lot more than I thought. It was less of a vertical cliff and more of a sloping cliff. And about 70 feet down, I landed on rock. Um, So... And I knew at the moment I took off, I looked down, I was like, oh, I'm, rock. I'm not, I'm not landing on snow. I'm jumping off like a seven story building to concrete, right? Wow. Now. And, um, I went through a really crazy mental thing at that moment. It's still like one of the most life changing mental things. Like when you're falling to your death, your brain goes to crazy places. Huh. And, um, it was the most calm, slow moment of my life. And it was like the most analytical moment of my life. I could see. I could see the filmers a mile away. I could see the helicopter two miles away. And I had a conversation that felt like a novella length conversation with myself in the span of two seconds. Yeah. And, um, and I ended up landing like I wanted to land. I kind of skipped, landed feet first and skipped forward off the rock, landed in the snow, tumbled down, um, stood up and thought I was totally fine. I was like, Oh my God, I'm fine. And then all of a sudden I was like, Oh, my knee hurts. <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah, I blew out my knee. I, um, tore ACL, MCL, meniscus, yeah. tibia plateau fracture. Ooh. And so in that rehab that summer, I actually did a lot of research as to what went on in my mind in that, in that point, because I was like, that was weird. What happened in that, in that moment? So it's, I, I'm, I'm mesmerized by this because I, again, I'm not a thrill seeker, but I did have a really bad car crash yeah. uh, almost eight years ago to the day. And it's all, there's a lot of backstory, but essentially my wife went into premature labor. Thought we didn't know what was going to happen way too early. It was all bad, whatever. They stabilized her. I uh, drove over. My family was in town. I went to have lunch with my sisters and I was driving back and I was fully conscious or whatever. And just like this shock and the whatever were up. And I fell asleep at the wheel on I-95 going 70 miles an hour. Oh, and I have no recollection of it. Whoa. Kind of went across like three lanes of traffic, still no recollection of it. Like went over an exit ramp, still no recollection of it. Now I'm in a forest, still no recollection of it. And I wake up, I don't know, maybe a second before the tree. I'm like, tree, head on, flip, crash. Whoa. And that second, the same stuff. Like, oh, it's a tree. Oh, I'm going seven. This is probably the end of my life. It just all these things, and then I'm upside down, and then it's you. It's you could see the matrix. You're just like. Okay, car smoking, turn off the car. Don't have my glasses. All right, I'll deal with that. Okay, how do I get out? Okay, I got to do this. Then these dudes come. Because it was right on the exit ramp. They, one guy takes a hammer, breaks it. Two guys pull me out of the car and they go, are you okay? I've never seen anything like that. Oh my God, we thought you were dead. And I go, 
you know, fine. Nothing happened. Wow. Yeah. I stubbed my toe and it wasn't broken. That was it. Amazing. Insane. And so, and those are those moments and I see with action sports are these avenues to this like mental exploration that I've seen because, yeah. you know, smaller versions of that moment when I felt like you were falling to your death and like you were getting a car crash has happens when you're just jumping a cliff when you're scared and you get into we like to call them like flow states or, you know, the zone. Yeah, yeah. And they happen so often that you kind of, you start to learn a lot about yourself. In that moment when I thought I was falling to my death and probably like you did, I feel like there's something within our own evolution that created these moments that create survival. And, you know, like all of a sudden you have these like superhuman capabilities. Yeah. Like the fact that I fell from 70 feet and landed on rock and was completely rational, not scared, calm, and did exactly what was I supposed to do. If I had landed an inch back seat a little bit, like butt heavy, my butt would have hit the rock, broke my back, probably would have died. Yeah. You know, like there's just so many, I hit in the perfect way, but when I was going down, it was this like planning out process of yeah. going like, Okay, so you're going to lean forward a little bit. Okay, the wind's kind of, you know, you're starting to go pretty fast. The wind's hitting the tips of your seeds a little bit, so get a little forward. All right, oh, that rock is a little slant to the right, so lean a little right because you want to go off right. And and it was this, this crazy moment where you're like, wow, there's this capability of the brain that we're not tapping into um, 99.9% of the time. Yeah. And you're like, so action sports, there's this, like, there's this weird avenue that people, you can get into these these states and... You know, basketball players all of a sudden talk about it being like, I couldn't miss. Yeah, and, you know, throwing in the ocean. And that's what I look at as a, a fan of baseball, too. I look at the guys that go on hot streaks. and Look at Bonds' entire 01 season, totally, you know? Like, you're just like, they, you just get locked into this place where you can, like, nothing, everything is easy, you know? Yeah. I, I always looked at, I read these stories of, like, um, Zen Buddhist monks and, you know, a 65-year-old versus a, a 21-year-old with swords the 65-year-old would always win because he could see what's happening before it's happening. He's almost, like, able to slow down time. Wow. And you're like, well, that can happen. You see that in sports so often, and you're like, when you get in these zones, so... Frickin' Gretzky, he, you know, sets up behind the net. He's like, you can see everything way yeah. before it happens. Exactly. And you hear all these amazing stories of, like, you know, the legendary one of Joe Montana, you know, seeing John Candy in the stands before he drove 99 yeah. to win the Super Bowl with two minutes to go. And you're like... You're that relaxed and in the zone that you're just like you're seeing everything for what it is. Yeah. There's no emotion, and I, it's a. That's why I've been. You know, there's many attractions to action sports, but that one right there has been like a really cool one to me. Yeah, the ability to expand your mind, and, and I feel like when my thing happened, a couple of people asked me, "Hey, did, were you, did you like see God or think about God?" I'm, I'm I guess I'm agnostic. Yeah. I grew up Jewish. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't say that I'm an atheist. I don't know. Yeah, totally. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I'm, I grew up Catholic, and I'm probably agnostic as well. But I was in the. I don't. I've been in those moments too, and I'm like, I don't know. But the, the thing about action sports too is you're not going to repeat going into a car or you know running yeah, right. street at 75 miles yeah. an hour. And that's where I see with action sports is it's a unique avenue to it. And huh. Yeah, you know, people can call it. You know, it's is it tapping into your brain? Is it tapping into God? Is it tapping into uh, evolution, what what is it? Yeah. yeah, but the fact that it's unexplainable is very attractive to me. Like, yeah. I don't want to almost die. I don't want you to sure. almost die. Totally. But the notion that if we, you know, they say we use ten percent of our brain. Imagine if we used eleven. Like, yeah, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, and that's what I felt like. All yeah. of a sudden, you're like, 
you tap into this place in your brain where you're all of a sudden using a lot more power. Yeah. <laughs> like you, the control over your body that you have at that moment. It's fascinating. It's super fascinating. Cause we, you know, we as humans, we think we have control of our body, but can, can you right now think about stopping your heart? You can't, no. you can't, your body has a lot of control over it. And we think as conscious people, we're like, oh yeah, we're, we got, I can do whatever I want. You're like, well, no, you can wiggle your fingers. You can't stop your own heart. Yeah. <laughs> so there's these like, uh, mental explorations with sport that I find fascinating. What was that? Um, Lucy, was that the movie where she could just tap into her brain? Yeah. That? Yeah. yeah that's I mean, right. I don't know that it was, a, I didn't see it. I heard it wasn't all that good. Yeah. But I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. I think the reason that movie probably wasn't good, I'm going to, well, I don't know about the writing, but who knows what that is? Yeah. The writer would need to be aware of what it's like to use 40% of their brain in order to write what a movie about. Right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I wonder who the consultant on that. They should have people, you know. A Zen Buddhist. Yeah, exactly. A 65-year-old Zen Buddhist should get exactly. in there. Exactly. So I want to ask you about, you're wearing a wedding ring. I don't know if that indicates yeah. that you're married. Yes. So you, Okay, so you have a long-term partner. So does that partner need to either be in a similar game as you or just be the most chill person in the world in order to be like, yep, it's possible he doesn't come back from this trip? Or can you just marry a civilian and be fine? Uh, I think from what I've seen, um, you either have to marry someone and have a partner that is a part of that world or yeah. is an absolute saint, like you're saying. Yeah. Because, and so my wife, she's a professional skier as well. Oh, okay. And, uh, she's not a free skier. No, she's a professional. Oh, she's skier. a free skier. Okay. Well, yeah. that makes it easier. So, um, and she is, yeah, she's at the top of the game. We were, we did a movie premiere in here in Denver last night. She yeah. was in the movie with me. So cool. She, so we see a lot together. So yeah, we, we talk about that. We know that distinct possibility. There's also, I have an insane amount of trust for her and she has the same for me. So yeah, um, yeah we know it's a possibility. Um, I mean, she had a very, very, very close call about four months after we got married. Um, oh. She was in an avalanche that um, killed three other people. Oh. She was the only survivor. <gasps> So there is, yeah, like there's very real possibilities yeah. of it, and it's and it's horrible. I've lost way too many friends to to sports. You know, it's yeah. over twenty now, and I've seen the effects that it has on their families and the people around them, and it's brutal. There's no, there's no glorifying it. You know, there's yeah. um, I'm tired of like the like oh he died doing what he loved. You're like no, it sucks. He's dead. Yeah, oh, right. He's dead. It's like you'd like to live doing what you yeah, love. You get exactly. to do it much more. Yeah, like my my goal is live to ride another day, and yeah. it's to these days as much as you like want to be pushing it. I'm also factoring like I want to be 65 years old and have my kids and skiing with them, and you know, yeah. there's all these other goals. So um, that part of it is it's a distinct possibility, and we you know try and do everything we can to mitigate it. And I I make big decisions based on. You know, there's this big race to do the first person to ski K2, one of the most dangerous yeah, yeah, in yeah. the world. And I know I physically could do it, but I'm not going to because it's just too much. There's too many people that have died due to trying. There's too much risk on it. And so you, you make those decisions and try and keep it within, you know, that the fact that you want to be around. And, um, but and then on the other side, you have the saint style. I have a couple uh, professionals that their uh, their wives don't, you know, are you're more conventional, yeah. love to be outdoors, but you know, not necessarily part of it. And I will say they are straight up saints. Like, wow. you know, like their the husbands are off traveling like mad and doing these amazing trips and uh, to be able to put up with that. Yeah. You literally have to be a saint. So interesting. It's, I get glimpses of this conversation that you're a math guy. 
Uh, no, I'm actually I'm horrible at that. But the thing is, I, I, you say that, but you're talking about K2, and you're like, this, this, this. Yeah. You're evaluating the statistical probability of yeah. X. Yeah, I guess so. And that's math. Yeah, yeah that is true. Uh, I mean, you do that all the time, really. Like, oh, yeah. if I do this jump, what's the odds I'm going to crush my knee? What's the odds yeah. it's going to work? What's, I mean, that, that's, that's odds. That's math. Totally. I guess I'm very analytical. Yeah. Very, yeah. Very that's a better analytical. way to say it. Kind of like I always try and evaluate things from myself to the exterior and try to be very rational and, and um, you know, devoid of emotion with it, which just becomes analytics. Yeah. That, so. so do you, if you're trying to do that during... Does the emotion come when you've reached the bottom of the hill? Like, yeah! Like, that's when the adrenaline kicks yeah, in? Yeah, for sure. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully if you're prepared enough, you you aren't scared at the top. Yeah. You know? Like, um, there's this line that I skied. It's called The Crack. It went very viral. Um, it was like Sports Center top ten place. Yeah, they say it, it's the greatest line allegedly maybe ever. Yeah. and, and you Where know, was we, it? I was up in Alaska. Okay. Um, and people asked me, like, how are you feeling at top? And I was like, I was so relaxed. I was in, like, the calm, sun-like wow. state. And, you know, my one of my close friends was the one of the cinematographers. He was on the ridge with me. And I could see he was nervous. And he's like, you got this, buddy. Like, he's always, <laughs> like, joking around, too. And he's all of a sudden serious. And I was like. Dude, like, calm down. You're making me nervous. Like, <laughs> I was like, I got this. And uh, because I was prepared for it, like, I'd done it a thousand times in my in my mind. I had um, skied other lines that were kind of similar or shared some features. And it spent so many, like, a decade up in Alaska that I could, like, kind of see what was coming. And I remember just dropping in, just being like, all right, I got this. And then coming out, and you watch the video, and I'm screaming uncontrollably and yeah. it all just comes flushing in of just like whoa that those sensations were unreal like next level kind of you know feelings that you get at the bottom of it so yeah just said it's a tap to my ipad oh, it's still going okay we're good um i also want to ask you about the financial side without getting into extreme details yeah. but things like filmmaking i would assume that you like the filmmaking too mm -hmm. but is that an absolute necessary part of it in other words you're sponsored by three musketeers bars but they're not necessarily going to pay your full freight so that's another yeah. way to monetize this yeah for sure we i mean the basis of it is definitely these base content as we call it yeah making making movies and putting social media stuff out there so yeah you um, can have your social media post sponsored if you have a big enough following yeah for sure and you're you were getting sponsored based on the fact that you have a big following yeah you know? so uh, uh, yeah, that that part of it, movie making is um, is essential. I wanted to do it from a young age, just because I grew up watching ski movies. Like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to yeah. do that movie. Um, but then it is fun working on the process, uh, the creative side of it, the coming up with ideas and trips, and then and then seeing it all to put together. Like last night, um, I saw what my wife and I segment together was going to be, but I hadn't seen the whole movie. Yeah. And, but you know, we worked on a lot of different aspects of it, and then you see it come to fruition. It was like really fun and exciting, cool. and the whole theater is going crazy. Awesome. You know, it's really fun, like yeah. that part of it. Um, but then there's other ways to, you know, make a career out of it. Sponsors are definitely the number one way. Um, but you know, I'm starting to coach camps and do some corporate speaking stuff. You know, I feel like. You know, for corporate speaking, like I have a very unique relationship with fear and mitigating with fear and risk. Which is the most universal thing. There yeah. is not one company you can't speak at. Totally. And my wife was actually speaking for, um, she went up to the north slope of Alaska to speak about risk and uh, risk management um, to oil workers up there. Oh, yeah. yeah sure, sure. You know, she Big deals with that on a daily yeah. basis. So that those are the kind of places you can go in and kind of, you know, make a living at. 
you know, making skis or being skiing, which I still think is kind of a joke sometimes. <laughs> like, like, you know, when the recession hit and I was like, still had a job and it's like, that's great. Paying me to do this. It's yeah. Ridiculous. Uh, you taught I me, mean, you mentioned the idea of, Hey, I want to be 65 and be alive and whatever. Do you get, I mean, you're still a relatively young guy, but I, this sport probably doesn't reward old age. I mean, no. it's not like, so, I mean, the, the experience and the knowledge, there's probably a certain inflection point where you've got the, te- the physical skill and the mental skill, like anything else, like football yeah. or whatever. But I would imagine when it goes, it starts to go. Do, do you have a sense of when that is? Do you have a sense of like, I'm 38, I'm out? Like, yeah. Well, I, I look at a lot of guys. There's a few guys I look up to that are in their mid-40s and they're still doing it. Wow. But they're, but they're able to do it in a different way. You know, the peak... That as a big mountain skier, when I was when we were making ski films, I feel like your peak is between twenty eight and thirty four. That uh, old, really? Yeah, yeah, because it's actually the knowledge. The knowledge, yeah, yeah. Well, if you're skiing in the in the, the park and in the X Games style stuff, it's like sixteen to twenty two because it's a fast twitch. Uh, yeah, yeah, fast twitch. How strong you are, how you know you take a huge crash and you get back up again. You know, I take yeah. a huge crash now. I'm like. Oh boy, I need a couple well, days off. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I need to do some yoga. And uh, so, but there's this peak kind of physical and mental um, a point, and I think it's between those ages. Most of the best big mountain skiers in the world are kind of in their early 30s because you you you're learning about the mountains, you're learning about the snow, and you're in your early 30s. Uh, yeah, 33 or 34. I forget. Thirty-four. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so theoretically, on the tail end of that, of that, yeah, of that sure. range. Yeah, and I know, and I, I like actually kind of physically had my peak in two thousand fourteen, mental physical peak, and since then, I. You I, knew? How do you know? Well, because of mainly what I desired. Like I yeah. had one of the best years you could have as a skier, and I won a ton of awards, and okay. it was just like it, it was everything I didn't even think I could do, but it was everything you kind of like would hope for one day. Yeah. And um, and then from there, I was like, I don't know what I want to do next. Like I don't necessarily want to keep pushing it further than I have because I pushed it to what I thought my limits were. Yeah. And you start pushing past your limits and really bad things happen. Yeah, yeah. So I took a very cautious move to kind of shift the way I was doing things. And I'm, now I'm doing different stuff. It could, some could argue more dangerous, some could argue less dangerous, yeah. but like, you know, climbing Denali and telling those stories and whatnot, uh, to me is more interesting than making a ski film where we're jumping off cliff after cliff after cliff, right. pushing like the limits of, of risk up. 10 times a day to make a ski film. So, um, there's a, uh, there's a balance and I'm trying to find that balance and trying to figure out where to go next. Um, but I'm uh, right now it's, I've had, I'm having more success than I've ever had on the career side and I'm really, really loving it. So, um, things are good. We'll see. We'll see how far I can keep going. Do you have kids yet? Uh, no, no, I do not yet. So is that, I mean, I guess maybe the obvious question, is this a, a lifestyle that you would, Encourage, I know you're not going to discourage. Would you yeah. encourage it or would you be neutral? Just be like, if you want to be a violinist, go for it. Yeah, I think by osmosis, they're just probably going to be outdoors and doing stuff. Yeah. Wife and I do stuff. At the very least. Yeah, yeah, at the very least. We always joke that our kid will end up being like a math video game nerd and not want to go outside. Sure. And like, all right, we're going to go ski. And they're like, well, I'm going to play World of Warcraft. Like, right, <laughs> but yeah, I would, I would be, I would try to be neutral about it mainly because, um, you know, my parents were neutral about it. They yeah. didn't discourage me from being a risk taker, but they didn't encourage me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they tried to give their 
guidance at times, but uh, for the most part, they like let me be what I wanted to be. And so I would probably try and do the same thing because I thought my parents did a good job and I'd like to do the same for kids one day. So we got to talk a little San Francisco jar. Yes, yes. Uh, I know you're a big baseball fan. We talked about a couple years ago. We can talk about, well, we got to talk about both, really. And, and when you say couple years, it literally is by increments of two. There's the yeah. whole even year thing. Totally. This is worse than the other odd years. The other odd years, you'd win like 83 and it'd be yeah. fine. Yeah. So, first of all, if you're a lifelong Giants fan, you're 34. You are on the young side to really get the full thrust of the Will Clark years and how yeah. good they, those are like the real beginning for you, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that was exactly the beginning for me was the Will Clark years and then kind of transitioning into the JT Snow and Barry Bond and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I started watching early when they were in Candlestick. Yeah. And I was, you know, uh, I would say a casual fan, but I was, I watched and knew what was going on. And then it was, um, it was kind of in the 2000s when we moved to the uh, AT&T Park, which was Pac Bell Park back then. Yeah. That I really started. I was in, I think it was 17 when, in 2002, when they went to the World Series. Yeah. And damn Scott Spezio. <laughs> I actually, I was at a ski racing camp and would, uh, there was one place in town with a TV and I sat out, uh, it was a bar and they wouldn't let me in because I was 17. So I s- sat outside of the bar looking in through the windows while it's snowing out, watching, or no, it wasn't snowing, it was cold. We were at government camp in Oregon and watching the game from the outside. And that's when I, from then, got really, really obsessed. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, there was like a switch that flipped. Because growing up, I actually hated playing baseball. I thought it was the most boring sport alive. And, it's really not as fast-paced as skiing down the yeah, face of a mountain. Yeah, but then as I've gotten older, I've really started to like just absolutely love the, the details of the game. Yeah. And I, I really, yeah, I'm... And the great part is now my wife really loves it too. She's That's a cool. diehard San Francisco fan. And um, I took her, what was it? Actually, in 2010, which yeah. was great, the year before, it was before we won, I was like, we got to go to a baseball game. Yeah, it was a regular season game. Regular season yeah. game. And she's like, she's like, oh, really? I hate baseball. And I was like, just let's go to a game. It'll be fun. I took her to the game. We were there, and I was looking at the schedule, and her birthday was September 16th, which is tomorrow. Yeah. And we were playing the Dodgers, and I was like, oh, maybe we can go on your birthday. And she gave me that eye roll look of dad. <laughs> sure enough, she has so much fun at the game that she's like, we're going to the Dodger game on my birthday. And so now we really, like, I we I mean, probably watch 100 baseball games a year. Wow. Yeah. you watch. I think you might watch more baseball than I do when I write awesome. about baseball. Awesome. <laughs> uh, well, I if the Expos existed, I would watch 162 for sure. Yeah, totally. I mean, I watch more Giants, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, I, you know, we've really grown to love the team and are passionate about it. But um, yeah, I mean, the Will Clark years definitely were the formation. He was my first original hero. I've had a couple of... I've had Greg Proops on the comedian. He's a big Giants fan. Yeah. There's a few Giants fans I've had on. I've had John Miller on. My God. Oh, that's the best, the best conversation. Oh, the best. And the nicest guy. The, oh, the, the, I can't say enough good things about John Miller. And, and, and Flem, by the way. Flem's yeah. great, too. I know. They're all... I, that's, I, yeah. The four of them. Yeah, the four Kirk of them. Kirk and Kai ridiculous. They're amazing. And, but John Miller is just like... He, I love that he has that... Kind of the old school, the olive oil voice. He's like, kind of feels like the last of yeah. Ben Scully and then him, and then I don't know who else. Well, my of... guy, Dave Van Horn, uh, was the original broadcaster of the Expos in 1969. He still does Marlins games oh, now. He does. He's like 80. Wow. That's and awesome. his voice is good. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, in terms right. of longevity, maybe he might be the only one, though. The only one left, yeah. 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 
Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, Miller's know. great. Well, the Flem thing, on my very modest Instagram, uh, the, I interviewed Flem at Coors Field, and uh, it was way after the game. Like, he had to do post-game, and everybody left. And so he said, okay, let's get out of here. So I walked him out, and we walked to the wrong place, and we got stuck. Yeah. So we had to scale a 16-foot fence, and the Warriors were playing the playoffs. It was like May or something. Yeah. He's like, I want to see the Warriors. I'm like, well, so did I. So we just jumped over the fence, which was really stupid, whatever. Yeah. This was just like a, a picture of me on the top of the fence. Yeah, am I going to leap down or whatever? Which I understand I've never seen that. I actually saw that. It was good. It was good. Well, I'm glad that yeah, you could yeah. get humor out of this. Um, I want to ask you, though, about watching... I asked Greg a little bit. I've asked some other people. I asked John about Bonds in his prime. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think you probably know this about me if you read my stuff. Whatever it is that Bonds did do or didn't do, I guarantee you Scott Spezio did equal amounts of whatever it is he didn't or didn't do. That was the era. I don't care. It makes yeah. zero difference to me. So now that we've established that, and Bonds is a bad MFR, uh, what was that like? What was that experience like? to tap into that and to really become, in that era, to start to become a big fan and just see, oh yeah, this guy's the best player since Babe Ruth, maybe better than Babe Ruth. Yeah, I remember it was just like, you know, it was almost like to a point you became desensitized to it. I look back <laughs> at it now and you're like, that was ridiculous. You like, don't run like every day. Yeah, and it, it was so unbelievable at the time that it became almost normal that if you went to games without hitting a home run, you're like, Let's Bonds up you know? Like, and, like, if, you know, they didn't intentionally walk him, you're like, and he didn't get a hit, you're like, huh, that was a failure. So I just remember it was absolutely electric. But I do know, you know, what during that time, it was, I, it felt like the San Francisco fans, we were obviously really for it, but as, as the steroid era started to bubble out, people were very kind of casual about, like, not saying how big a fans they were. That was yeah. what I felt was there was this little bit of like everyone loved it. It was like, but it was this guilty pleasure of being sucks. like, kind of like, uh, yeah. maybe he's coming out. And you know, the unfortunate thing was, uh, his relationship with the media at that time was so sour right. that Pettit got good treatment, Giambi got good treatment, a lot of these guys got good treatment. Yeah. And so, he, and, and so it started to become a little bit, yeah, it was just like, you know, the electricity of what happened on the baseball field wouldn't necessarily translate to the way that people talked about it, yeah. I thought. We, you'd still, I felt like at the time we were still talking about the Giants more than necessarily Bonds, even though the reason we were only having success was Bonds. Like, there was very... Jeff Kent won MVP. That was the funniest thing yeah, I've ever seen. Jeff Kent, fine player! Great player. Was not the MVP. No, not the MVP. And, like, and who else? I mean... Jason Schmidt. Schmidt. Yeah, Jason for Schmidt. Rob Nen was there for, and then like, there was a few other players, but I mean, Bonds was carrying that oh, yeah, yeah. on his shoulders. Yeah. And I still look at, I know when you go to the park, and I didn't go to games then, um, and, but I look at it now and you're just thinking of left field and hitting into the wind out there left, just the way he did, and you're like, how did he hit there with such frequency? Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. And, and I'm in the same boat with you. I've gotten to that place where, you know, by definition, baseball is a changing game. Yeah. Like, the, the parks are different. You know, we've all seen the stats of if you played at Coors Field, how many more home runs. Koufax pitched on an 80-foot mound in the 60s. You yeah. needed a rocket launcher to hit at a Dodger Stadium in 1966. Exactly. It's a game, It's an inherently changing game, and we've tried to always, like, make it as, as, as rigid as possible, but it's changing. And so that's why it's like he needs to be in the Hall of Fame, because that was that era. That, of course. That was how many pitchers were pitching to him or as juiced up as he was. I, I have a Bonds bottle bat literally one room over from really just sitting there. Yeah. And again, I'm, yeah, I'm an Expos guy, but Bonds... Yeah, I mean, that was the other thing is you watched him too. Like, 
his swing was a more beautiful than any other swing. You know, before he when he when came into the league, yeah. he had just one of the most amazing swings. Him and Griffey were the two guys for me, just exactly. in terms of aesthetics. Yeah, you could just see that the the smoothness, the, the their power, their quickness, and it was just like no one else had that. And yeah, he just amplified it a little bit. But he would have, I mean, probably without steroids, the guy would have hit five hundred home runs as it was. <laughs> well, and the whole idea of just going back to being in the zone and all that, like the ability to spit on a pitch that's half an inch outside. Yeah. First of all, that requires eyesight. I think is a very underrated part of baseball. Like, yeah, I don't know what kind of supernatural eyesight you have, but just like you're seeing the seams on the baseball, you're seeing the trajectory of the baseball. You've had so many reps. This is how much it misses. But I almost found the borderline walks yeah. in some way more impressive than hitting another ball into the bleachers. Because it's just like, how did you do that? I agree. And this is actually a question I kind of wanted to have for you. Please! And because as as a guy that really, I do love the, the statistical revolution. I love looking into the inside yep. stats and trying to figure it out. And I thought, you know, in your time when I got to know you in your grant land, you really were able to translate that in such a good way that like I was able to Thank understand. You. Um, but there's one thing that I've, you know, the the notion that essentially you're always kind of regressing towards a mean if you're having hot streaks, you're yep. coming through, and then the, you go to playoffs and it's completely random. And at that point, you know, um, these are statistical outlays. If you're in the playoffs and they're just like, you know, two playoff series where they're hitting out of their mind and eventually they're going to come back down. Because well, it's a small sample size and all that. Exactly. Stuff. But I believe, to me, like, yes, I think there is a lot of regression for the mean, but I think there's special players and this is that mental side that I see in sports yeah. that all of a sudden can go to those places like a Buddhist monk and just focus. Like I, watching Madison Bumgarner in the playoffs is an entirely different experience than watching him in the regular season. Yeah. And we all know what he's been able to do, but you see the the focus, the calmness, the drive. And I, I, I think there is still some special players that can, in the playoffs, in these small sample size, do a lot better than the statistics will say, and statistics, you know, some very hardcore stat- statisticians will say, like, oh, you're, there's no chance that they're going to be able to hit better in clutch situations in a playoffs, because right. stats don't say that. But for me, there's this mental component of it that says to me, there is. There's a couple things about that. So, yeah, the sample is obviously the main thing, but here's the thing that I wonder about. Wouldn't it then follow that somebody like Bonds or Kershaw who are geniuses throughout the season and universally acclaimed as brilliant human beings and brilliant athletes, wouldn't they be the ones excelling in the playoffs? Because they didn't really. Bonds in 2002 did, but not before that. And Kershaw's had his troubles. And A-Rod is a baseball genius, and he had his troubles. And some of the biggest superstars ever have failed. Now, maybe it's just that it's too small sample that if we let them have 28 years of playoffs, it would eventually catch up and we see that they're great. But I just wonder about that. Like, I, I think it's possible that there are guys that tap into it, but why does Mark Lemke tap into it? That's what that's, I don't understand. And that's what I see is because you learn more from failure than from success. Yeah. And so to me, for Bonds, it was so easy for him that he didn't have to go to a very, these mental states to, you know, outperform his statistics in these small sample sizes mm-hmm. because he just did it on a normal day basis. And all of a sudden, in a small sample size, it looked smaller than what he did. And or and but I see these are the guys, the Cody Rosses, that all of a sudden you're like, how did you do that? Yeah, 
he's probably coming into the playoffs, in my opinion, thinking like, oh man, I barely can make this team. I just got traded. I don't know what I, you know, never does anything else in the rest of his career. But he, you know, it's like goes to a mental state where he's just like focused, relaxed, and hits dingers off Roy Halladay in game one, and everyone's like, what the, and just has an amazing... The people that have to try harder have more ability to tap into it. That's what I see. And that's that's very I, interesting. That's what I always see with guys like, um, yeah, the, these random people that all of a sudden come out of nowhere and just have the hottest world series yeah, yeah. ever, because they are having to figure out a way that they're like, I can't let down this team, I'm not that good of a player, so I'm generally considered a failure, so I'm going to try to really focus on this, whereas... You know, guys like Bonds or your A-Rods and whatnot, they just do are successful so often that they don't necessarily know how to get to that next state to even outperform their average, which their average is so much higher than yeah. everyone else's. So that's the way I see it. It's like there's this unexplained form mental edge and why we always see some random hero in the playoffs. The other thing I just wonder about, uh, my wife has showed up. She's going to take a picture of us in a minute. Um, the... Is that baseball's more? It has more randomness as a sport than other sports. Too. For sure, baseball. You might be right about the tapping into things mentally. Baseball to me is not a sport of will. Yes, I don't sure. think you can will your back plane to be an eighth of a millimeter better. Football is a sport of will. For you're sure. in the trenches and you're an offensive lineman. The guy's coming at you. You either have it in you or you don't. I mean, For there's sure. technique and all that stuff. So I, I think that like. Maybe it's a matter of attribution. Like, people say, oh, that guy did better because he tried harder. I'm going to reject that. Just for baseball. I don't think for other sports. But as far as the Zen and the higher level and the 11% versus 10%, again, I'm going to declare agnosticism. Maybe. I I, don't know. That could be. And that's where I, to me, having had those experiences in action sports so often, I kind of can see it when you hear the subtlety. Like, it all of a sudden seems like the the ball's a, a, a... softball you know all of a sudden they're seeing the ball so much yeah. better you know those are those i'm like that's that's what it is it's not like you can all of a sudden hit it better and all the yeah control that you're like i'm gonna hit right into the gap in left field like and you know because the ball's an extra half inch outwards right. and you might not do that but uh but for them all of a sudden it's like the game slows down the pitch slows down and it's just all of a sudden you're like oh i can see it it's from and i hit it and that's you know where i see the extra little bump the the eleven percent versus ten percent. So, and yeah, stats are never going to be able to explain that. But maybe one day, and that's where you know I've become fascinated with trying to look at the mental uh, capabilities and the things I've experienced in action sports. Yeah, you know, like what what in traditional sports could you do with that as well? Well, you're giving me a lot to think about on that front. It's good, and I think that I'm always careful. You know, that when you define yourself as an analytically inclined writer, for sure, you go to the sample size, you go to this, you go to the kind of Occam's razor. Here's a statistical explanation. Yep. And I'm trying to fight my instincts to not be illogical, but to open my mind a little bit to other possibilities because this game has been mapped out so many times that maybe I'm missing something. I yeah. feel like you could never know everything about anything. It's no. impossible. Totally, you know, you really couldn't. But the, those are the, yeah, like, um, that, that mental edge is what I, I find fascinating. Yeah, and those World Series videos that come out of nowhere. Of course, the Cody Ross. Yeah, yeah. So one last question, which I do at the end of every podcast, uh, is I always ask the guests for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, something yeah. that defines them. Uh, Codyism, and my God, you're risking your life on a daily basis. Yeah. You've talked about mental flow. I've, this whole freaking conversation has been a... Uh, that kind of thing. So we can always circle back to something you said earlier, or maybe it's some little thing that you like to do on the weekends or whatever. It's something that if somebody met you, I met you at a bar and you said, this is what I'm all about. This is what you'd say. 
Um, the biggest thing, I think the question I get most is like from skiers that want to become professional skiers or, you know, how do you do what you did and, and what is, how do you give me the map to it? And the only thing I always say is like, if you're passionate, you'll find a way. And that's ultimate to me is like for me to become a professional skier and be here 15 years later and still doing it and making a living at it. It was all came from the fact that I was so singularly obsessed with that, right. that I made a lot of other sacrifices in my life so that I could do this. And I, I step-by-step step planned it out. I was like, I got to do this. I got to go to there. I got to meet this person. I got to do this. And it was all just strictly from passion because that was what I wanted. So I see that as a, a trait of, of successful people is just their passion about it. Like, the reason you've been able to be a, a successful baseball writer is that you're, I'm sure, passionate about baseball yeah. and writing. And you figured out a way to make that happen. And you created your own your own blueprint, your own uh, your own map and your own path. And uh, there, because there is no path, but there is only like one thing that drives you down that road, down that path, and that's passion. So um, for me, it's like just find find what you're passionate about and figure out a way to make a living at it. So I will gently offer, not a rebuttal, but a question, I guess. And I'll do it not just on behalf of you, but on behalf of myself. So uh, I, we did not have much, but I was able to eat and whatever and went to college and did all that stuff. Like we lived in Upper Duplex. It was a modest upbringing, but it was fine. Yeah. It sounds like you had a pretty middle-class upbringing. Yeah. But you lived near a mountain. Yeah. You knew that you would have clothes on your back. There were certain things that you were afforded that offer a platform to passion being realized. What about for people who have a tougher go of it? For sure. Who are trying to make that happen? Because I feel like there are quite a few people. Yeah, no, and I go through the same stuff. And that's why I often still say to people, I'm also lucky. Yes. You know, I and grew, me too. Big you, time. You, like, I grew up in uh, exactly a middle class family. We had a, They were passionate about skiing. I were able to afford me to go up there. And there's a lot of things that happened that were part of this luck thing. So, you know, that's a question that I, I struggle with. I think it's a question of society as we stand right now is like, how do we help people that want to be passionate and break down the walls so that they can get through yes. that. And that's, you know, that's uh, a, a debate within the public sector and private sector through and through. And I don't know exactly that. Um, I know that incentive is one of the most powerful things in the world, but I also really believe in the fact that we need to lift people up. We need to help them through because I got help from people. You got help from yeah. people. And that is so essential to a, a functional society. So I don't have a piece of advice for that. Um, you know, I think there are special few people that, you know, if they grew up in a ghetto in a, in a, in a terrible living situation, yeah, yeah. they can't escape it. But for most people, it's it, it's not going to be a reality. There's too many walls. So, um, so I, I wish I could answer that question. I think we're all trying to answer that question right now. Can skiing be an inviting sport for someone not necessarily of means? I mean, I'll be, it, it, I know it can, what I hear, yeah. I didn't, I've never skied, not once in my life, not even like on the bunny slope. But I, from what I understand, having a lift ticket, getting the equipment or whatever is expensive. Are there outreach programs? Are there ways that you could do it where you're not necessarily of means? It is an expensive sport. And that's the one thing that kills me about it is yeah. that it is an expensive sport. Ski areas are expensive. Your startup costs just to get into it are expensive. Is there like a skiing philanthropist out there who's like, I'm going to sponsor so-and-so so that so-and-so can have an opportunity to do so-and-so? There are a few organizations yeah. out there. Um, but that's definitely actually been a dream of mine one day. That's to, cool. Uh, like, I want to go into, you know... 
rougher parts of Sacramento, at-risk youth, and bring them to the mountains. And, you know, say you get 100 kids up there, and if you have one kid that it changes their life, then I think it's going to be a success. And yeah. Because I, I know for me... You've started coaching, too, a little bit, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, cool. I know for me, everything that I've found good in my life has come from the mountains, has come from sports, yeah, yeah. and the, the things I've learned about the world have all come through this. So it's like... I want to help introduce people to that. And uh, I would love to, you know, it's kind of a, a dream of mine one day as like, hopefully as the career wraps down and you get more comfortable, you can start to create something that where, yeah, we can, you know, go into uh, at-risk youth groups and bring them up to the mountains and, you know, get all your people that, you know, your suppliers giving you equipment and get them up on the hill for free, get the sponsors and make it happen. Just get them on the mountains for a day because uh, I, I think the mountains are truly a life-changing place. Maybe in my 40s will be the time that I start make a go, but I'm, I'm a Canadian, yeah. I live in Colorado, I've never skied, I've never snowboarded, and I don't know how to ice skate without falling down. <laughs> I'm a fraud. Yeah, 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 don't sound like a real Canadian. <laughs> Not at all. Like basketball, that's about it. Uh, Cody, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, if you're listening to this, even if you don't have Instagram, get Instagram for the sake of following Cody on Instagram. It's my favorite follow there is I, listen I like pictures of burritos as much as everybody else but the Denali stuff is just I feel like I'm there I feel like I'm yeah. struggling with oxygen and challenges and the one well the, the free climbing one. Oh, I didn't ask you about the free climbing we're gonna yeah. ask about the free climbing so that's different you you bike you know, there's videos of you biking pretty intense but if you wipe out you're probably not gonna die skiing certainly a big time possibility but you have mastery over that this is not your forte per se, no. and it's you hanging from a cliff edge. Yes, so this is also part of growing up in Squaw Valley. Yes. And idolizing people like Shane McConkey is that humor, making fun of yourself, and messing with people is a big part of our culture. <laughs> so that photo that you're looking at, yeah. there's a rope. Oh, okay, <laughs> so all right, we, good. We were filming an intro enough. for the ski movie last night, yeah. and it's a humorous intro. I'm poking fun at myself throughout it. And so we went out and uh, lowered me down on a rope to this place, and I kicked my leg up and hit the rope with the silhouette of the light. Amazing. But you're not the only person. I put it out there, and I was like, I think... You can't well, see it. It's not well, obvious. Well, my parents, they got really <gasps> concerned and I guess they had some big speech to me about, like, yeah, like, hubris and all this stuff. Because they were like, this is, you're going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At this point. And uh, they were with the filmmaker who shot that. And he was like, oh, oh, no, no, that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> and they were like, oh, thank God. So, okay, good. Okay, I feel so, a little better. It's still a cool photo. It's a cool, it turned out to be a really cool photo. But, yeah, no, we, uh, uh, making some fun of yourself messing with people. It's like this squaw thing that we grew up with and it's, uh, um, it's, I don't know, it's just always trying to, uh, you know, I, that one is probably the one where I'm messing with people. I'd say eight out of the other 10 posts are kind of me trying to make fun of myself, yeah. or, you know, or making light of even social media and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, and it's a, uh, yeah, it's a fun thing we do. And yeah, I like the, I like uh, Instagram because, um, or just even social media in general, yeah. because, um, I get to share my stories directly with the audience. Yeah. And it's a really powerful thing. I grew up, my mom's a journalist, a writer, mm -hmm. and uh, it's a unique new way to be able to share your stories with directly with your audience, you know? And it's, uh, well, that's what LeBron's doing. That's, yeah. I mean, that's what's happening now. For sure. I think we're, I'm obsolete. Like, I'm, you know, I'm some middleman that doesn't need to be there in a sense. Well, no, because he's still 
you still write articles that are better than what you can share on social media. And that's really I guess that's I, true. You know, when I read the 10 this morning, you're like, oh, I appreciate that. Th- there's something that's not going to be able to go on Twitter that morning. You know, you Darwin Barney it. gifts of him sliding into third base very <laughs> exactly. poorly. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. That's what you, there's still that, I, I think it's obviously the media environment's consolidating, but there's still, you know, when there's Grandland, there's what you do at Sports Illustrated, and, you know, there's The Ringer now. There's still a need for high-quality, you know, writing, storytelling. You know, you share baseball in a way that I don't understand, so I seek that out to try and learn. And I think that's always going to be something. So yeah, um, I think there's probably a lot of media is becoming obsolete, but that's kind of the just, like, it, you just people are having to be better at it, I think. That's so, fair. Yeah. Uh, sir, thank you very much. I wish you luck on all of your adventures, and uh, thanks for coming to my living room. Yeah, no, it's great. Great to meet you. Great to be here.